Well, thank you, choir. I'd love to hear our choir sing. They bless me Sunday after Sunday. Natalie, you didn't do too badly yourself. Thank you. In 1998, George Barner wrote, At the risk of sounding like an alarmist, I believe the church in America has no more than five years, perhaps even less, to turn itself around and begin to affect the culture rather than be affected by it. 1998. I believe the church has five years or less to turn around and affect the culture rather than being affected by it. There are those who believe that we might have missed our opportunity. We look what has happened in the last 16 years, and we know there have been dramatic, perhaps fundamental changes within our country. There are 32 states today that accept as legal same-sex marriage. I believe about three of them actually voted on it. The rest of them have been rulings of the courts, state legislatures, who know more obviously than the people. I am grateful for our governor, our attorney general, who has taken a stand and a position to enforce the law that was written and voted on by the people of South Carolina. There are more and more states that are considering the legalization of drugs, not because they believe it to be in the best interest of their people or good for the country, but because it is a revenue strain for the government, and Lord knows the government needs more money. The church is attacked today in unprecedented ways. You're familiar with what happened in Houston where the city council and the mayor subpoenaed the sermons of the pastors if they had mentioned homosexuality, gender, or the mayor who is a lesbian. And they said if the sermons were not turned in, this is Houston, Texas, if the sermons were not turned in, then they would be held in contempt of court. It seems to me that the church also has been affected by the culture. We have a tendency to compromise the gospel in order to be politically correct because we are more interested in what man says than in what God's Word says. As a result, the church has been marginalized. We simply do not have the authority that the church did when you were growing up, when I was growing up. We have lost so much of our standing today and oftentimes dismissed by the world. So is there any hope? Take your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 19, because I believe as long as the Lord Jesus is on the throne, there is always hope. Verse 19, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, 
not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All right, so what then is our hope? If we say there is hope, what is our hope? And he says, first of all, that we are to draw back to God with a sincere hope. You'll notice there in verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I believe that man has a desire to know God. I believe that you were created that way. There is a desire to know God. After 9-11, the next Sunday, what? Our churches were filled. Why were they filled? Because people know innately that God is the answer. When you and I face tragedy, we face disease, we face death, we face some of the, the, the difficulties of life, we ask people to pray for us. Why do we ask them to pray for us? Why is it that we turn to God? Because we know that ultimately He is the answer. So how then do we draw near to God? He says that we are to draw near to God. How do we draw near to God? And man has his own ideas as to how to do that. There are those who believe that we draw near to God through the intellect. That was the idea of the Greeks. They believed that we draw near to God through philosophy. There are others who say, well, now, we, we draw near to God through mysticism. With my feelings, I, I, want to, I want to emotionally experience God. So how then do I draw near to God? With my feelings, with my emotions. The mystery religions in the New Testament were highly emotional religions and it was an attempt to draw near to God. You have seen that in the Old Testament. You remember when Elijah was up on Mount Carmel and he challenged the prophets of Baal to a contest. Whose God is the real God? Whose God is powerful? And the prophets of Baal, as they cried out to their God, asking for God to speak, for God to, to act, the Bible says that they cut themselves, they injured themselves. Why? Why did they do that? Because they believed that by doing so, it showed their great emotional attachment to their God and that God would respond. So there is the belief that I draw near to God through the intellect. I draw near to God through the emotion. There are those who believe that I draw near to God through morality. If I cross all the T's, I dot all the I's. If I'm a good person, if I'm a moral person, then that makes me draw near to God. But what is God's desire? What does God say? He says that we are to draw near to Him. We have a desire to do so. But how do we do it? Well, He tells us there in verse number 19. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the what? By the blood of Jesus. Oh, so that's it. How do I draw near to God? By the blood of Jesus, by the cross. And so he continues there in verse number 20, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. You recall when the Bible gives the story of Jesus dying on the cross, one of the events that took place as he was dying was the, the Bible says that the, the veil in the temple was rent, was torn from the top to the bottom. 
symbolizing that now then man has access to God. So how do you draw near to God? The Bible says through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that the, 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 the entrance is now available to you. It is open to you. Folks, we don't draw near to God. And I understand. I, my, my heart was touched as I listened to uh, Natalie saying, my heart was touched. That's emotion. Whenever I listen to some of the other songs and so forth, that is the intellect. That's all good. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I want you to understand is that we draw near to God through the shed blood of Jesus. It is through His blood, through His sacrifice, that the door has been opened to us. Now, there, there are, are requirements that we see in verse number 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So there are conditions, he says, that we draw near with a sincere heart. Vine says sincere denotes true in the sense of real, ideal, genuine. Now listen, in order to draw near to God, we must have a sincere heart. Genuine. When my children were young, and now my grandchildren, I've said to them, you can fool me. You know, you can, you can pretend and I'll believe it, because I want to. You can convince me as my children, as my grandchildren, that you're living for the Lord, that you love the Lord, that you're doing the things that you're supposed to do. You can convince me of that, because I want to believe it, but not God. He says that we draw near with a sincere heart. The way that we come to God is in a genuine response, real response. So he says with a sincere heart, full assurance, he says. The word assurance, Vine says, means the freedom of mind and confidence resulting from an understanding in Christ. The engrossing effect of the expectation of the fulfillment of God's promises. In other words, we draw near to God with a sincere heart and we have full assurance. Why? Because we believe that God's promises are true. That they will be fulfilled. Wilbur Chapman was a Christian, he was doubting his salvation, not sure that he was really saved. There were some things in his life and he wasn't sure that he was really saved. So he went to D.L. Moody and he expressed to Mr. Moody his concerns, his doubts and so forth. And he wasn't sure that he was really saved, though he had done the things that he was told he was supposed to do. Moody quoted to him John 5:24. I say unto you, he who hears my word and believes on him that sent me, has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. Moody asked him, he said, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? He said, yes. He said, then whom are you doubting? Salvation is in Jesus. It is secure in him. So we come to him with full assurance that his promises will be kept. And he says, then our hearts are cleansed. We are cleansed by the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. When we come to Jesus, we are cleansed on the inside, and that is reflected on the outside. So, 
We come with a sincere heart, and that leads us to an unwavering hope in verse number 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises is faithful. Folks, it is possible for us to have hope because we are in Christ. You see, we have hope of our sins being forgiven in Christ, no matter what your sin is. We have hopes of it being forgiven in Christ. Years ago, I preached a revival, and there was an elderly man who came to me after the service. He told me about a sin that he had committed when he was a young man. And he asked me, he said, do you think God can forgive me? Oh, absolutely. No matter what the sin is, my friend, when we come to Jesus Christ, His blood is sufficient. When He shed His blood on the cross, it is sufficient to cover all sin. So we have hope of forgiveness in Christ. We have hope of eternal life in Christ. John 10, 28 says, I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. Why do I believe that I am secure in Christ? Because I am in Christ. It is in Him. It is what He has done, what He does. It is not in me. So I have hope then for forgiveness. I have hope for eternal life. And I I have hope for His return. In verse 37, For yet in a very little while He who is coming will come and will not delay. You know, Titus 2.13 refers to the return of Jesus Christ as our blessed hope. I know that some people are scared to death of it. Oh my goodness, if Jesus were to come today... It is the blessed hope of those who are in Christ. Those who know Jesus see that as the blessed hope. So he says that we have hope and therefore we are to what? We are to hold on to it. Verse number 23 again. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Now the Hebrew Christians needed to hear this. Because they were going through a difficult time when this was written. Barnes says it is evident that those to whom he wrote were suffering persecution and that there was great danger that they would apostatize. So the writer is saying to them, hold on to the faith that you have. The hope that you have, hold on. They needed to hear that. The Roman Christians needed to hear that as well because their faith was under attack. When the Roman army would go in and um, they would conquer another people, They would take the God, the pagan God of that people that had been conquered. They would then place that God in the pantheon. And uh, then the God became legal. It was a God that was to be worshipped. And so they had all the gods in the pantheon to be worshipped, to be accepted. They said that all the gods are good, all the gods are equal, and they are to be worshipped. And so they needed to hear this. No, hold on to the confession of faith in Jesus Christ. You know, we face a similar situation today when we're constantly being told that all religions are good, all gods are equal. They're all good. The only thing we lack is the the pantheon. I suppose that we need to erect a a building somewhere and and put all the gods in there and say they're all good. And we are to to worship all of them. And he says, no, you, you hold fast, hold fast without wavering. Hold fast to the hope that you have without wavering. The word wavering is two Greek words. It means to negate and to bend. In other words, don't bend. He said hold fast to the faith, to the hope that you have 
without bending. And there's always the temptation and the pressure to bend. I look at the Hebrews and they were constantly bending when they were in the wilderness. You know, I mean, they, God had set them free. He had delivered them from bondage and they're out there. And they said, man, I tell you, I don't, we don't have anything to eat. And so God sent them manna and they said, I'm sick of this manna. You know, I have manna in every meal. God gave them quail and they got tired of all that. You know, they were constantly bending back and forth. Water. Whatever it was, they were constantly tempted to bend, to compromise. They said, you know, we ought to go back to Egypt. At least we had the flesh pots there. We, you remember those good meals we used to have, those dinners on the ground that we used to enjoy so much, and the fellowship. I mean, yeah, we were slaves, and they were beating the thunder out of us, but boy, what a great time we were having. Always tempted to bend. Christians are tempted to bend. Simon Peter was. When he denied the Lord, when the little girl came out and said, you're one of the disciples, he said, I've never seen the man in my life. We also are pressured to bend, to compromise doctrinally. When we say that Jesus is the only way of salvation, there are those who say, wait, wait a minute now, you're, you're, going to have to, you're going to have to bend a little bit here. I mean, that's your belief and that's fine, but there, there are some other ways of salvation. You're going to have to bend a little bit. If we say that there is a heaven and there is a hell, they say, well, I don't know about that. There might be a heaven. I don't think that a good God would send anybody to hell. So you're going to have to bend a little bit like, you know, you're going to have to compromise a little here. If we say that marriage is between a man and a woman, they say, no, you're going to have to bend there. You'll offend someone. So we are constantly tempted to bend in order to fit in. He says, don't bend. You have a hope. Hold it fast, unwavering. Don't bend. That's what he says. We are not to compromise the truths of God's Word. Now, see, there, 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 there are some things in the Bible that are just true, that Jesus is the only Savior. That's just true. Then there are some interpretations. I have some interpretations. Now, obviously, I think they're true or I'd hold something else, but I might have missed it. We're not to bend concerning those things that are dogmatic in Scripture. How can we hold fast? Well, look again in verse number 23, down at the bottom of it. For he who promises is faithful. Oh, wonder, there you go. How can I hold fast in a, in a day when there's tremendous pressure? He who promises is faithful. He gives me the ability to hold fast. Now, I looked through Scripture at Noah, and I thought, you know, how did he do that? The Lord said that he was going to judge the earth and... Noah was to build an ark. He began building the ark for 120 years from the time he started until the flood came. How in the world was he faithful 120 years? But he was. God gave you. What about, what about Abraham and Sarah? Now, here they are. I mean, it, they're in the nursing home. They're 100 years old. And the angel comes in and says, y'all are going to have kids. Well, sure we are. The Bible says that their bodies were as good as dead. How'd they do that? The Lord. He is our faithful help. My friend, listen, there is a tremendous amount of pressure on the people of God today. The Bible says that we are to hold fast. Don't bend because He is able. We have a God who is able to sustain us and to enable us. So we have an unwavering hope because we see the day approaching. Verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The, the thing is, is that Jesus is coming back. Now, that's what this is about. Jesus is coming back. Well, what are we to do until he does? Are we supposed to go somewhere and get up on a high mountain and wait for him to come back, you know, humming kumbaya and dressing in robes? And that? So it's what we're supposed to do. What are we supposed to do? You believe, you, if, you're, if you're a child of God, you believe the Bible, you believe that Jesus is coming back. I said, what are we to do until he does? What are we to do until Jesus comes back? Well, he tells us. He said, stimulate one another. Verse number 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. All right, so what we are supposed to be doing until Christ comes back is to stimulate one another. The Bible says to love. To love. Love is the preeminent command. When the lawyer came to Jesus and said, uh, what, is the, what is the first commandment? What's the great commandment? And, and he was asking in terms of its authority, what is, what is the great commandment? What is the first commandment? You know what Jesus said? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. That's the, first, that's the preeminent command, and it is a powerful command because the Bible says in John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I am challenged by that. How do people know that we are followers of Jesus Christ? Well, I'm a Baptist. I mean, they know that I'm a Baptist or Presbyterian. How do they know? Well, I've been baptized by immersion. I tithe. No, the Bible says that they know that we are his followers. Why? Because we love. Because we love. That is the reflection of Jesus that we love. So he says that we are to stimulate one another. Do you do that? When you're around people, do they love more? We are to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. The Bible says that we are saved by grace, but we are saved to do good works. Because I'm around you, you should be stimulated to do good things. And because you're around me, I should be stimulated to do good things. Stimulate one another. Encourage one another. Verse 25. Vine says the word encouraging means to admonish, exhort, to urge one to pursue some course of conduct. We are to encourage those who are suffering in verse number 32. He said, but remember the former days when after being enlightened... You endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle. We all go through conflicts in life, and we need encouragement, do we not? Jesus was going through a conflict when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was struggling there. He was going to the cross, and he was struggling. He said, Father, if there's some way to save man other than my death, he said, then let this cup pass from me. So there's a struggle that's going on with him, a conflict that is there. We all have conflicts in life, and I'm sure, that, I'm sure that many of you are going through a conflict even today. He mentions being a, a public spectacle when people scorn us and make fun of us. They need to be encouraged. That's what he says. We are to encourage each other. We are to encourage those who are losing hope. In verse number 34, he says, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Why? knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. You see, ladies and gentlemen, we might be going through difficult times here, but there's heaven for us. 
And we're to encourage each other by reminding each other that there is heaven. We're to encourage those who need confidence in verse number 35. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Those who have lost their confidence need to be reminded that God's word is true. We are encouraged when we are reminded that Jesus Christ is coming again. And for those who know the Lord, it will be a day of joy. It will be a day of great joy for those who know the Lord. Be a day of judgment for those who do not. That's what the scripture says. When Jesus Christ comes, for those who know him, it is going to be a a day of great joy. For those who do not, it will be a day of judgment. Now let me conclude. We're living in times that are difficult and different. And I think the reason for that is that we have, there is an attempt at least, and largely it has been accomplished, that God has been removed from our society and life doesn't make sense. If you remove God from the equation, it just doesn't make sense. And I think that is some of what we're feeling. There is a removal of God from the education process. There's a a removal of God from the governmental process. There's a removal of God in almost every avenue. And it just doesn't make sense. Beliefs are under attack. The beliefs on which this country was built, and and I I would love if if our young people knew more of the history of this country than you do. Because it unquestionably was built upon uh, the belief in, in Christianity. It just was. But that is under attack today. And as a result of that, for many people, their hopes waver. There is tremendous pressure that is placed on us today. Therefore, we must be absolutely committed. We who believe must be absolutely committed because, especially my dear young friends, you may be the last hope for this country. You know, I'm going to die and go on. But you may be the last hope for this country. And so your response is extremely important. Thus, you need to come to God with a sincere heart, genuine. Not pretending, not fooling anybody. Genuine. Have an unwavering hope in Jesus Christ. And be a faithful witness to this world of Jesus. One of my wife's favorite stories was when Sherman and his army were going through the south and they came to Georgia. They came to a farmhouse and set it on fire, burned the house. The woman in the house grabbed a broom and began chasing the soldiers. Her son grabbed her and said, Mom, there's nothing you can do. And she said, but they're going to know whose side I'm on. Do people know whose side you're on? By the way that you live, by the way you conduct yourself, do people know whose side you're on? Ladies and gentlemen, these are challenging times. But we have hope in Christ. And as long as he is on the throne, we have hope. Our gracious Father and God, I thank you for the Lord Jesus who shed his blood on the cross to give us an entry into the kingdom. 
And I pray for these today that they will be committed to you genuinely, sincere hearts, holding fast to the unwavering promises. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps today you have never trusted Christ as your Savior. The invitation will extend is that you might do that. You say, well, I don't know how. We'll have staff members here to pray with you, talk with you. If you'd like to come and talk to them, they'd love to talk with you. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you. Stand with me, please, as we stand together. The choir sings. As they sing, you come. I'll greet you as you do.